This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome again to season three of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, your host. As you may already know, What I Did Next focuses on people's personal and professional crossroads and looks at those trajectories from key pivot points. My guests are multilingual, multicultural, and they are either from the Middle East or are connected to the region in some way. They're industry leaders, they're curious and passionate about the world around them, and they aim to leave their mark in some way. Today I welcome Keto Dubur to the show. Keto may not be a household name, but if you've lived in the Middle East or in India, his work is almost certain to have impacted you. Keto spent nearly 30 years at McKinsey, and his involvement in the world of management consultancy, as well as international political institutions, has given him unique insights into what makes the world go round. Our conversation did not only focus on business and work, however. Keto revealed himself to be a man of many hobbies and interests, acknowledging the grounding importance of family and the essential need for a satisfying inner life. For Quito, this has been given expression through art. He and his wife are avid collectors of art from India. His work in helping set government strategies across various sectors in the Middle East placed him in a unique position to succeed Tony Blair as head of mission of the quartet from 2015 to 2017. This entity was tasked with helping mediate between Israel and Palestinians particularly tackling issues from an economic perspective. We start our discussion today with our new icebreaker questions. The first question is based on the Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point. You can find more detail about the question on our Instagram page or on our new Twitter account. I asked Quito what personality type from the book he most associates with, a connector, a salesman, or a maven. I I resist being categorized or, or, or pigeonholed even. So I, I did think about the three. And in reality, what I think I am and have been is, is being a builder, a builder of businesses, a builder of, of creating something that didn't exist before. Um, and in order to be a, a, a builder, it requires all three um, in different combinations over time. It's dynamic. If I think about my early stages of my career, um, I didn't know that many people and I couldn't connect in order to be successful. I had to know something about something. So I I had to be a a maven. Um, I think that uh, as I started to build the practices of McKinsey in both India uh, and in the Middle East, I had to develop much more of a capability around um, 
being the sort of person who was good at negotiating. Um, I forget what that category is. I think that's more of the um, the salesman, perhaps. Yeah, the salesman. I had to do a lot of that, um, and then finally, after sort of twenty to thirty years of knowing something about something and then working hard to build a business, then you become much more of a connector. So I think if you ask people now, people will say he's a connector. I, I, I balk at that a bit because there are people who simply are networkers. I mean, that's it's almost an end in itself. And for me, as I thought of myself as a builder, everything I did had to have a purpose behind it. Um, so I had to have knowledge with a purpose. I had to think of what was relevant knowledge to the community, societies, and, and clients I was in. And then I had to think through who were the relevant people. Uh, and then how do I find a way of building a business that would support others in addition to myself? So I, I think it's at least all of those three in different balances at different times in different contexts with an underlying mission, which is that around building something that hopefully would outlast me. Yeah, I find that interesting because I've asked this question already a few times uh, for this season, and uh, most people actually came to the question from a slightly different way, which was that they were a combination of possibly two of these character traits, but they didn't think of it in terms of um, of periods in time like you have. Mm. You know, there are certain times of your life when you are one of these things, or perhaps a couple, and and then it shifts with time. And that's a, that's a very interesting uh, approach. And I think that's actually very accurate because mm. you can't be a connector, as you said, without having something of a foundation first. Our second icebreaker is based on social media. Does Keto use Instagram or Twitter more? I thought this question would be quite easy to answer, but I have come to understand that most people have a love-hate relationship with all social media platforms. Keto's take is more straightforward. I'm a technical caveman. I'm, I'm just speaking to a, a Neolithic remnant. I actually did my undergraduate degree in, in management science, which is um, computer science in those days. So, I mean, I, I understood the importance of it. My early jobs were in, in computer technology, but I have... I, I avoid the social media. So I'm, I never use Instagram. I never use Twitter. I deliberately avoid it. I want to have the minimum digital footprint I possibly can do. Um, the only Instagram I actually follow is my, my daughter. She owns a restaurant in New York. She always photographs her food, and it's nice to see what she's doing. So, so I do that. But um, if you look at... The biggest Instagram, people who have the most followers, if you look on Twitter, with the exception of Barack Obama and maybe NASA, I, I have nothing in common with Ariana Grande or Ronaldo, Christian Ronaldo. And it's fine, right? They are all stars. They're all athletes. God bless them. Um, I sell it. But I, I have no interest in, in them. And I have no – in fact, I'm, it's not that I have no interest. I'm basically repelled – at the idea of Instagram, uh, and, and most of all, I mean, I just see you go to beautiful places, you go to Venice, you go to Greece, and people are now just going on, on weddings to places that are Instagrammable. Um, 
and you think the tail is wagging the dog. Um, and then they don't actually look at where they are. They're looking at it through their phone. Yes, we went to a nice lunch last week um, and uh, it, it happened to be full of, unusually in London, it was full of tourists and they were mainly from, from China. And it is a very good restaurant, but they weren't really focused on themselves at all. They were just taking photographs of the food, of themselves. Uh, and I just, I found it disturbing, uh, but I also found it distressing. I, I, I'm completely on the same wavelength as you. Uh, but I, I will, I'd like to discuss that with you in more detail, but I want to go back to a, one point you made, which is that you, you deliberately avoid um, those platforms. And I think that in itself is an interesting answer to the question. Most people that I've spoken with, regardless of their work, are, you know, uh, either one or the other. But I also want to mention or, 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 or sort of point out something, which is I, I know that Instagram is a little bit more superficial uh, in terms of the content, but Twitter isn't necessarily um, all about celebrities and so on. There's actually a lot of major debates going on if you follow certain people, depending on your interests. And it can be quite intense, the discussions that go on there. But again, it, it is superficial because it's done on a on a limited number. You know, the, there's a very f few amounts of words that you can use on Twitter. But... But if you're, you know, if it's a question of superficiality, then the Twitter uh, environment can be less superficial. I'm not, def I'm not defending it, but in terms of the between the two, that can be one of the ways of of approaching it. No, I think, yeah, I think you're right on that. So, I mean, the fact that Barack Obama is number one on Twitter, I believe, uh, has been, I, I think he probably still is, says something about that as opposed to Christian Ronaldo on uh, Instagram. For me, for example, to get a better understanding of what's going on in Saudi Arabia, Twitter can be very helpful. I, I do have probably a level of paranoia um, about my overall digital footprint. I mean, I have I've basically had a number of big brothers keeping track of what I say and what I do. For When I was in India, I used to go to Pakistan a lot. Uh, and all my time in the Middle East, um, I'm always extremely cautious uh, about my use of email, phone calls, any of those sort of things. Um, and I, I just uh, on the side of caution. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. I mean, I think I think we could all use a little bit of caution in our <laughs> lives, to be honest. Let's start, Kito, a little bit from uh, a little bit about your childhood. I, we don't need to go too much into it, but mm. I'm interested in the fact that you were born in Venezuela uh, mm. to Dutch parents and that you were educated mm. in the UK. Yeah, so I, I, came, I can claim no credit for having been born in Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was simply present. Absolutely. Uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, my... Uh, a bit of background. My grandfather was uh, in the Dutch diplomatic service, and he was governor of, of in Indonesia and in Aruba, which is the island off the coast of Venezuela, which had one of the world's largest oil refineries. So my mother was born in Indonesia, so she'd had one of these um, you know, 
colonial type backgrounds, uh, which were quite common at that time. And my father was born in Holland, and, but he came to Aruba in 1938, lucky that he escaped the Second World War. And he met my mother on this small Caribbean island, and they had a pretty good Caribbean romance. And they then ended up staying. He worked for Shell. And he, they then spent, I think, over 20 years uh, in that whole part of Latin America, uh, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, which is where I was born. I have three brothers. One was born in Peru. Two were born. Two of the others were born in Venezuela. I lived there for a long time. Uh, I, I don't have much recollection of Venezuela. I was three years old when I left. Um, and then because it's Shell, which was Anglo-Dutch, my father was transferred to Holland. And that's how I was brought up in the UK. And, and then when you graduated, you, you, went straight with, you went straight to work with McKinsey? No, I then went off um, and started sort of exploring the world. I, I went to San Diego to begin with and worked. There was a, the number two computer company at that time, which most people won't know, is, is, was Burroughs Computers. They had a microchip fabrication plant in the very early days of microchip uh, and then went, was transferred to the head office in Detroit, then I went to Southeast Asia, to Singapore, uh, worked for Electrolux, a vacuum cleaner company. And that's where I met my wife, Jane. And we, and we lived in Southeast Asia for three or four years. Um, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Hong Kong. And then the, the move to McKinsey happened around this time? Is that when you started it working did. with them? When I was in, in Singapore, I was about 20, I guess, 24, 25 and I was dealing a lot with a computer company, a German one called Nixdorf, and the founder of Nixdorf, Heinz Nixdorf, came out to see, you know, and he then offered me to join Nixdorf and, and run Asia. And I thought, well, that sounds nice, but I was also thought, that's really terrible. Right? I'm, where am I learning from? I, I just felt that I was in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Sure. Right? And I didn't just want to have one eye. I, I, I felt that I really wanted to be in an environment where uh, I was learning from others. And I, I remember having a moment saying, I, before saying yes to this, I need to write to the best. And that I thought was McKinsey. So I wrote them a letter uh, to, to Brigadier Harry Langstaff in London. Uh, and he wrote back and said, well, sounds like you're doing interesting stuff, but we only hire MBAs. And if you do an MBA, uh, write to us. Then went to Cranfield and did the MBA and applied to McKinsey after that. And they said yes. And then I got married about a year after joining McKinsey. So you were very young when you joined McKinsey. You were fresh out of grad school, even though you'd had lots of uh, work experience before that in different areas. Pretty young. Yeah, I think I was probably like 26 or yeah, something, yeah. which is, you know, that that's the average sort age of for, normal that, for that thing. work. Yeah. yeah. And you joined them in Delhi. Is that right? Were you working with them there? No, I joined them in London. In London. I joined them in London. I became a partner in London, and then in uh, about 92, 90, uh, 92, 93, I think it was, they decided to open an office in, in India, um, and the first office was in Bombay, and then I moved. How was the work with McKinsey, how was it different to what you had been doing before? Obviously, before you were doing much more technical, um, computer-related type work. And this is quite a different sort of uh, job. What, what appealed to you about it? Well, it was profoundly different in almost um, every possible dimension. What do I mean by that? 
London was the second, it was the first international office of McKinsey. We'd been there for a long time. Uh, people understood what consulting was. It was well established. It was mature. Uh, very senior people in the office. So I, I came to India and uh, A, India was, and to a certain extent it is a very poor country with absolutely no tradition in history of international professional services. Uh, and they had no idea what consultants were, let alone having to pay lots of money to young people to be consultants, right? I mean, consultants were probably people who they used as intermediaries to oil the, the cogs of the system. Sort of like a PR um, for them in their, in their mindset. Yes. So we, we, weren't, we had to create an, an industry rather than serve clients. Now, I, I came to uh, India and I was the only non-Indian in India. And I came to India knowing something about consumer goods and retailing. That's, that's what I had done. Um, but there were there was almost no consumer goods and certainly no retail industry. And I wasn't Indian, and all my other colleagues were Indian, and they'd been to school with the titans of industry, and they were networked, and I wasn't. Uh, back to your question about am I a connector or, or a maven? Yeah, I had no connections. I knew nothing. I had to start from from scratch. How did you do so it? So what I yeah, I mean, I, I did two things really. Uh, the first thing I did is I just said, I'm going to speak to 100 CEOs. And I, I didn't know who the 100 CEOs would be. I didn't know who was good or who was bad. I just said, I'm going to do it. And I, I, I kissed 100 frog. I, I wrote 100 letters to 100 people and said, here, I'm a new boy in town. I just want to meet you. I want to hear from you. And 97 of them said yes. Right. Um, so you is, did your uh, own personal market research there. Yeah. yeah. I did market research. I talked to them. I remember one person in particular. I said, look, what would your advice be to me? Uh, and he then said, uh, well, how do you beat Sachin Tendulkar? And Sachin Tendulkar was, at that point, at the peak of his powers. He was the greatest cricketer in India, possibly the greatest cricketer in the world. And he was a hero. How do you beat Sachin Tendulkar? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, don't play him at cricket. Play him at a game that you could win, which I thought was a, you know, as, as a piece of advice I've kept and said to many people. Um, you know, it's a bit like, you know, how do you beat Mo Salah? Well, don't play him at football. Find, <laughs> find something else. So I, uh, I had to find my, uh, my non-cricket game. And so the, the second thing that I did was, and this is back, if you like, about searching for the truth. I, I said, look, McKinsey is a fantastic organization with incredible people and, and an ability to uh, apply their brains and knowledge to almost any problem and, and figure it out. It's quite exceptional in that. But what is the problem that McKinsey should be trying to solve in India? It wasn't to sell more detergent or to sell fizzy drinks. It, it had to be something else. And the obvious thing about India at that time, but still to a certain extent true, which is a very important truth, is that over 70% of the population are farmers. Right? And so I said to my colleagues at McKinsey, what I want to do is I want to do a research work on agriculture and farming. And they said, you must be mad, right? Because when you do that sort of pro bono research, uh, you at least have to be able to anticipate that you may be developing clients. And there was never a chance in hell that a, a farmer would ever become a client of McKinsey. And they said, and, and by the way, we know nothing about it, they would say. And I'd say precisely, we know nothing about what is the most important aspect of India, 
And isn't that a shame? And it's, again, you know, one of the great things of McKinsey uh, is, in the end, they let you do what you want to do because it's you're a partner, right? You, know, you don't have a boss. It's strong culture. And they say, okay, if that's what you want to do, we'll, we'll support you. So a year-and-a-half-long project, the organization, the CII, the Council of Indian Industry, said, actually, we should show this to the finance minister, who was then Manmohan Singh, who then became the prime minister. And we showed him the simple fact that the cost of a chicken in a wet market in Delhi, which is our local can market fish, was more expensive than a frozen chicken in Walmart in Arkansas. And he refused to believe that because, you know, in the West, you go to a supermarket, it's in a freezer, it's air conditioned, it's clean. How can, a, how can that possibly be the case? And we had done all the nerdy McKinsey things, and we had done the cost curves of chicken production. And there is a huge cost curve between an efficient chicken producer and an inefficient one. And he saw the data, and he said, this simply cannot be true. Thank you very much. It's very interesting. And then he got his finance department economist to do independently their analysis, and it turned out to be verified what we had done. And that changed Indian economic policy in terms of retailing, in terms of how they dealt with the farmers. And we're now on to, our, I think McKinsey has now done its fourth or fifth report like this. And it, it shows that so what out of this long story is, it's a lot of difference if you swim with the tide of what matters to people, to cultures and societies, and if you try to swim against that tide. Uh, and so... I think one of the things, you know, in the in when we moved to the Middle East, and I was the only person there, I had to do the same. Problem. What was relevant to the Middle East? But, but I think um, I want to go back a step, Akito, to the beginning of the story. I think the essential factor here that you're maybe too modest to to talk about is the fact that, in a way, being the outsider in a society like India, which is very much like a Middle Eastern society, where it's all about who you know and the connections and um, and uh, the networking, you didn't know anyone. So in a way you came in, you asked your questions of the 100 CEOs and they might have felt very comfortable telling you what they really thought because they knew you didn't know their direct rival or that you didn't know their wife's brother, you know, all of these kinds of things. So there might've been a little bit more transparency for them to talk to you more comfortably. I, that, that's one thing that I kind of took away from your story. But also the fact that you were able to come in with a big picture um, and shine a light on, on an area that had been staring them in the face for centuries, but they never considered an industry in itself. They always considered it, you know, freelance farmers or um, a cottage a cottage industry type thing where they never thought of it as a, as a bigger industry. Whereas coming in from abroad with a with a sort of a, a bird's eye view of it, you were able to to look at the larger picture and and clearly that that made a big difference to McKinsey's uh, establishment in India and I think that's a very important factor that you're clearly t maybe too modest to to highlight. Well, I think that's true um, and and quite insightful. Um, I, I, in McKinsey, we always talk about having to be on the balcony or being on the dance floor. You you can. You need to understand whether you're on the balcony looking down and seeing the bigger picture or if you're on the dance floor doing stuff. And it's in, neither is right or wrong, but those are two very different positions. Uh, and you need to actively manage and toggle between the two. 
And because a lot of my, this is back to the Sachin Tendulkar question, play a game that he can't, that you can win. The others were all on the dance floor because they had their networks, they had their connections. They, uh, I, I had to play a different game. So I, I spent a lot of time on the balcony trying to get a, a bigger picture. When we come back, I talk to Quito about his work with the quartet and the fabulous Indian art collection that he and his wife have amassed over the years. That's right after this short break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to What I Did Next with our multifaceted guest, Quito de Burr. So how did that translate when you were moved to the Middle East? Tell me about that move. The managing director of McKinsey, you know, the McKinsey India office was successful, it did well, and I was associated with that. And he said, okay, you clearly seem to have a, a knack for this, um, starting things up and building and connecting and stuff. Well, no, how about doing it again? And I said, fine. And he this said, is by uh, now we're looking at two, the year 2000, aren't we? Yeah, the discussion was in 99. I moved in the, I moved in the summer of 99 uh, with the family for the school year in September, I think it was, to Dubai. But I asked him the question, you know, what do you mean by the Middle East? And he said, good question. That's for you to figure out. But it's anywhere east of Turkey and west of India, because that's the only other places we had offices. Uh, so my task number one was to figure out where the office would be. And I, first of all, went to Beirut, to Lebanon, because the biggest consulting firm at the time was Booz Allen, and they were sort of headquartered out of Beirut. So checked that out and decided this was good for maybe good for Booz Allen, but it wouldn't be good for us. Uh, and then the second place we went to was was Egypt, actually. I did not see at that point the will... To change. Were you looking at Egypt as um, uh, as a location for the for the business, or as a place to to actually begin work? It was going to be our head, our first office in the Middle East. It would become our regional headquarters. And Egypt was, you know, is you know the biggest country sure. in the Middle East. It's it's sort of uh, it was where the talent pool was. It had scale. It had complexity. It had many of the attributes that India did. So, and I felt very comfortable in in that environment. But I made a judgment call at that time that 
something fundamental had to change in Egypt for it really to become a McKinsey type of place. For Dubai, having you there was a big coup for them because they were obviously trying to put Dubai on the map in terms of a business of a location to lure business. And, and that must have been a big get for them. Yes, that, that's also very insightful. And in the end, we opened two offices. We opened one in Abu Dhabi and one in Dubai. You know, it's really Dubai that in the early years took off. And part of it was that the Dubai government wanted us to succeed, right? They need, and they were very interested. We we did a lot of work in the early years in building the Dubai that we see today. It was good for them. It was good for us. It was, a, I think, a, a happy, not a marriage, but an en- engagement. Um, uh, and I think that struggled more in, in Abu Dhabi. I mean, we now have offices that are big and vibrant, but in those early days, um, things took off faster in, in Dubai. I just want to get a sense of how you 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 ended up going from McKinsey to eventually the quartet. Um, and I know that you did a lot of work um, with different governments. But before that, what were the sort of the areas within McKinsey that you you developed and, and, and widened in the UAE? So I can now see why you are run. Uh, you're a successful podcaster. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> because yeah, no, because you continuously ask. I think the 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 the, the right and insightful question. Thank you. So in a way, it was a a rerun of the playbook of India, which is you couldn't just go to McKinsey with the McKinsey you know, product list and and sell it to India. You had to reinvent it. Then I had to step back and did what I'd basically did McKinsey in, in India, which is to go, well, now I'm not going to go and ask everybody if they don't want to hear about us. What is it that they really, what is going to make us relevant? There? And as you know, at least in the Gulf, but in general in the Middle East, you have to start at the top of the house. That's, That's how it gets matters, done. Yeah. In, in the Middle East, it's from the top down. It's not from the bottom up. Correct. And then getting to the top is not always easy. That in itself takes time. And what all of them basically said is we are not interested for McKinsey to come here to help us with energy and oil. We've got that sorted. We've got more energy and oil than we know what to do with, nor are we particularly interested in finance and banking. Right? I think they were mistaken at that. The one thing we're interested in is our people. Right? We, we just aren't educating them properly. They're not in the labor market. We've got huge levels of unemployment. So I had to go back and make the case to McKinsey, which is, well, McKinsey is set up as our strategy to be the consultants of choice on the most challenging problems and the most important problems of the most important people. And in the US, it's interpreted this way. In Europe, it's interpreted that way. In India, we interpret it in a different way. Now we're going to have to go through an reinterpretation of that in the context of the Middle East. And what that means is that we're going to have to work for the royal families and work for the governments because, you know, there is not much difference between royal families, governments and businesses. And that made everybody feel terribly uncomfortable. But this was 2000. And then, of course, we had September 11th. Right in 2001, then we had Gulf War Two. But, but this must have surely accelerated the the need for the the work with uh, sorting out the issue of people. I, I'm sure that the, partly the U.S. government would have encouraged local uh, countries to step up their um, their reforms, would have which would have had an impact on how they deal with people and how they. 
uh, educate people, healthcare, all the services that are needed to support their young, young population. I'm sure that you haven't come to that that point where you realized this is the area we need to focus on. Um, that all just accelerated, probably. I'm I'm guessing with 9/11. So uh, you would think, right? So uh, there was a polarization. Uh, there, there had been uh, quite a long. In, there was a reason why we weren't in the Middle East. It was one of the last office, uh, offices to open. Uh, and there had always been a debate about should a professional values-driven services firm like McKinsey be working in countries that are non-democratic because won't that taint us? And then the argument to that was, yes, but if we serve our multinational clients who are there, that should be fine. I find that really interesting that that was an internal debate. A very strong internal debate. I mean, we should also overlay the fact that we actually have a... a, a substantive Jewish community within McKinsey, like many professional services was, firms. Was the argument put forward that by being in those countries, you could actually affect change? Then this is the nature of the debate. Now, if you uh, do any reading on McKinsey recently, particularly from the New York Times, they will talk quite a lot about you know, people like McKinsey helping to support tyrants and dictators. That's one of the things that they use, and they talk about China. And we have the same debate in China. Right? What, what kind of should we do? Are, are we, you know, whose side are we on? And we try to say, well, well, we're not on any government's side, but we have to be very, we're not an American firm, we're a global firm, and we're out there to help whoever we think are the right people to, to help. But there is this, this is a very healthy debate to have, and everybody should have it. What are the boundaries that we set and what are sort of the, the, uh, the ground rules for what do we do and what do we not do? Right? So serving our multinational clients in funny places is an easy one. Right? Um, but what I was saying, and I was only saying it because that's what the, the rulers and the people were saying, is that we have to serve people. And what does that mean? We had to be strong in education. We had to be strong in labor markets. How do you actually make the labor markets work and we had to be strong in healthcare. And so my pitch was that we were going to develop a public sector practice in the Middle East. And at that point, McKinsey had a strategy not to serve the public sector uh, very explicitly because you know you then get into policy and then you get into politics and that was a, you get a dangerous into space a, first of all. An area that is not your yeah. core. And then the and then they said, oh, all right then. Okay. And I said we're working for the ministries about systemic improvements to education. And so we actually started the global education practice in the UAE. We had an Egyptian woman, actually, uh, who went to MIT, and, uh, she, uh, and she led our education practice globally. I mean, but it started in Dubai. Very proud of that. So let's move into the your work with the quartet. So you you moved from the global. You were working with McKinsey at the end, doing the, a global uh, public public, uh, se so, public sector. Yes, yeah, so I was I was yeah, leading the co-leading the McKinsey's global public sector practice. Um, we had agreed to do a piece of work for somebody called Soroni Cohen. He used to be with McKinsey many years ago. He was a very successful um, businessman, and then left that and set up the Portland Trust which is a foundation to build relationships between 
the Palestinians and the Israelis. He's uh, he, he's he's Jewish and a leader of the Jewish community. I believe he was born in Egypt. He was born in Egypt, indeed. He was. Uh, I, I, you know, a great human being, a, a wonderful man. We were talking, and he said it would be great if he could do a piece of work about what is the future of the Palestinians like under the current conditions. Uh, how, how can we? find a way under continued occupation to... So uh, we said, that's an interesting question. So we did a pro bono piece of work. In the process of doing that, we had teams in Ramallah and Jerusalem. I had known Tony Blair from previous times and stuff that we had done. He was then the head of the quartet. Uh, and I ended up speaking to him quite a lot about this. And we were just wrapping that up when Obama too came in and John Kerry became the Secretary of State. And one of his priorities was to have one last push at the peace negotiations. And he had a model in mind with three streams to it. One was a security stream, and he got General John Allen to, to lead that. To uh, There was going to be a political stream, which he wanted to lead with the support of the quartet and many others, but he was going to take ownership of it. And he wanted somebody to, to, to lead the economic stream. And so he then reached out to Tony. They had a discussion. And he said, what I really want to do is be able to show the Palestinians and the Israelis, the regional community, what the economic upside is of peace. Because they have to have, uh, you know, they, they have to have a prize at the end of this. Because they're going to have to make sacrifices along the way. And Tony said, well, what you should really do is speak to McKinsey because they've just done the companion piece. They've done the yin to that yang, if you'd like. They've said, what's the economic opportunity under continued occupation? If you ask them, I'm sure that they will. So anyhow, he then, John Kay then reached out to McKinsey and we had the discussion and said, okay, we will do this other piece of work, which is what is the economic upside of a, of a peace process? Did their work. He liked that work. And he then asked me, would I take the lead in implementing this in as part of this peace process. And there was some toing and froing. It was it meant me leaving McKinsey. That's not a thing you do lightly. Um, After how many years? You were there for what, 30 years? 20, 29 years. Yeah, 30 years, 29 years. Yeah, and, and those That's final a, years, yeah. I mean, a lot of McKinsey is about, you know, you, you, you build your position towards the end. But leaving in the last few years was, um, it was, Fiscally, not a wise choice to make, but you know you don't get opportunities like this. Do you consider this to be a, a major pivot for you? Yes, because you were going off into a very different sort of environment. You, you didn't have the the backing of a of a of an organization like McKinsey, where you'd had the track record, and it was uh, it was a long shot, wasn't it? It was a very long shot. Look, I don't think anybody um, uh, had any. Uh, rose-tinted spectacles about the probability of success on this. I mean, it was very much a, um, if, if we don't have one last push at it, then it will be game over. I'd like to just conclude by talking about your, your cultural life and your hobbies, but primarily I'd like to talk about uh, your, um, your art collection and how that started. I know you and your wife are very large collectors of Indian art, um, and that that started when you were living there. Um, just give me a sort of an overview as to as to how that started. I understand it was your wife, Jane, who was the spearheader of that. Um, and and what you think, uh, glow, you know, is sort of a big picture. What does, what does a, having a, an interest in the arts or um, a rich cultural life, how does that 
uh, inform your your world? So, I mean, if you want to be a leader, I think of of anything, right? And this is part of the thing that goes back to your first question about uh, the Malcolm Gladwell question um, and my sort of fr frustration a bit by the three choices that you had. If you want to be a leader and a builder, you have to be both interesting and interested. Um, you know, when I, when I was speaking to a lot of the top hundreds, et cetera, in whatever culture, you know, my discussion around business would be maybe 10 to 15% of the conversation, 85% of it would be very broad ranging discussions. And you can get into an office once because you're the head of McKinsey, but if you're going to keep on being asked back, people have to do that because they, they actually think they're interested. They've got something out of it. So you have to solve um, not just being a maven in terms of knowledge that's domain specific. You actually have to be interesting. And you also have to be really interested in, in what you're doing. You can never be a leader if you aren't passionate about the culture, the people, the topic. You, you just can't. It's always hard work. I, for me, it was never really Well, it comes across work. as it comes across as fake then, doesn't it? It doesn't cross. No, it, it does. does. It comes as fake. Yeah. I love India. We do. It's an incredible place, right? Just a wonderful people, unbelievable culture. And the same thing can be said for the Middle East. I mean, look at Egypt and the history. Of the, I mean, it's just uh, extraordinary. Now, when you're doing professional work, you can see it and you can taste it, but you can't understand it. So then the question is, if you really like the cultures and the people that you're in, how do you then engage with that culture and society? And there are many different ways of doing it. Um, but uh, art is a very effective way because it's like poetry. It's, it's a visual poetry. It's how do you find a way of saying something, communicating something um, very crisply, but profoundly. Um, and you know, artists have a genius to, to do that. Did you look at it in, in the sense of, uh, I want to leave something behind? Uh, I want to make a, a name for myself uh, in, in this? Or was it just very organic and, and, uh, and gradual? It was very organic. I mean, it's, it's, it's frankly insane. We spend all our money. We, we were probably the only senior partners in McKinsey who didn't own any property. Because <laughs> every, every paycheck went into um, either schooling or, or pictures. And we've long since run out of walls. I mean, so what do we do with, with all of these things? Um, we did it because we simply loved it. Right? And the, these, um, not just, we loved the whole, everything that went with it. It's in the early days of buying art in India, there was no internet. There was almost no publication. So finding works and seeing them was complicated. It well, you involved, also had to educate yourself about about what you were absolutely so it's a it's a learning process in a sense isn't it so it's a learning process and then you'd have to i mean you have to understand context you know why was it that they were painting what they were you can't just look at a painting in isolation and say oh, i like it or don't or you can do but that's not how you build a collection uh so you had to put a lot of research into it there was not many why did we do the book that we did it's because actually there are very few books on indian art uh, on on individual artists but not really many works on that, underdeveloped. 
And in the days before the internet, the only way to do it was to fly to somebody's house on other part of India, which would normally take three to four days and sit with them and wander around the house and look at the paintings that they got on the wall and drink coffee and eat food and ultimately usually make friends. Of course. Uh, often friends for life. And, and that was what would happen. And, and when you were doing that, um, were you attracted to certain periods or was it just um, you were, I mean, at, at one point, there must have been a conscious realization that you are creating a, a collection. I mean, at the beginning, probably not. But after a while, did you begin to think, oh, well, we have a gap in, you know, we don't have it a lot from this century, for example, or or was it not at all like that? No, again, a perceptive question. So to begin with, we just bought stuff that we liked. At some stage, we stopped, you know, at about 300 works or something. And so what have we just done? Right? Because what would happen is visitors would come and we'd go to cupboards and we'd pull things out, <laughs> we'd put them around everywhere. Uh, and you'd say, God, the people would say, you're crazy, or you need to write a book, or you need to open a museum. And uh, so we had never really thought about it like that. And the analogy I have, it's a bit like, uh, you know, one of those dot paintings. Right? Each painting is a dot. Uh, and after 300 dots, you suddenly see a pattern. And you suddenly see this is... You know, this is obviously what you're drawn to, and then why is it? And quite a self-discovery, right? because honestly, why had we bought a lot of this artist and not of that artist, and of this period, not of that period? Um, what's going on in, in us? So it's also a self-discovery. Um, kind of the long short, we focus on the 20th century. Um, there's a law in India that anything more than 100 years old can't be exported. There are things like national treasures, which foreigners effectively can't buy. So... We didn't want to get into any trouble with that. So what I think is distinctive about our collection is that it actually traces most of the geographies and most of the schools of the 20th century in India in general, it's also in South Asia. And you will find people will have concentrate on a couple of artists, but there are few people who've got an integrated collection you know, the 20th century in India is very interesting because it was the period of independence and post-independence. And good artists are capable of capturing the essence of what is going on in their so society. They don't have to be overtly political. Sometimes they are, but it's inescapable. Um, so when we look at our collection, we see a representation of India and its society as it's gone through the 20th century. So in a way, it's almost photographic, isn't it? It's a, it's a snapshot in time. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm interested to know how you did that with your wife, because um, it's not a given that you have the same taste or that you uh, want to put down you know, money on, on, the, on the same painting. How did you decide uh, together? There must have been a system between you to to, you know, either one of you has a, a, a you know, a say-so on one painting and then the next time the other one gets the, the veto or something along those lines. How, how did you do that? Because it's not very easy to do something like that with your spouse. Well, one of the great things for us about, say, South Asian art, it, it was a shared passion. Um, if it hadn't been a shared passion, I think no amount of vetoing rights would have, would have worked. Um, so we, we, and given the craziness of my professional life, I, I was gone a lot of the time. This is something that on, on our personal life was, was a bond. Uh, it was a force of integration, whereas work was a force of uh, disintegration, if you like. 
Um, and it was natural, it was organic. Uh, we have slightly complementary skills in that uh, she is, uh, has an extraordinary eye. She is much better than, than me at, at spotting greatness earlier on. Um, whereas I, I tend to be just stuck in my head too often and I want to do more research and understand more and it has to fit into a narrative. It's more instinctive uh, with her. Out, yeah. What I learned, in general, I should have learned this sooner and faster, is <laughs> I should listen to her more. <laughs> From earlier. your lips but to it's... every husband out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But in, you know, in, in the painting section, it, it really was true, right? I mean, the uh, amount of times she would see something and say, we should get it. And I thought, no, I don't know it. I don't get it. And then you hesitate and you lose what turns out to be, a, you know, to this day, all the works that I regret were ones she said yes to and I said no to. And that, in the end, you just humbles you and you say, okay, then I'm going to listen to you. So it's uh, yeah, as yeah. I should do on, on many things. Um, that comes with it with experience, was, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. Well, Kito, thank you very, very much for your time. It was a really interesting discussion. You have a lot of editing to do. <laughs> no, actually, I'm hoping not to because it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> thank you very, very much, thank Kito. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening today. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. Please remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and now on Twitter as well for updates on the show. Just search for What I Did Next. You can help our show to grow by leaving us a positive review in your favorite podcast player. Our next episode will be in two weeks' time, and we hope you can join us then.